Hitchcock's Psycho and not Psycho, but more um, Rear Window. And um, I was thinking a lot about Vertigo with your novel. Sure. Yes. And the San Francisco scenes. I mean, that's San Francisco, but there's still like this film noir aspect that is actually in mouth to mouth. So like, maybe let's start there. How inspired are you by say Hitchcock or these very like 1940s, 50s noir type films? Right, right. Consciously, not at all. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm so excited for today's guest. First, I want to introduce him. Uh, Antoine Wilson um, recently came out with the novel Mouth to Mouth, which is what I'm really here to talk to him about. But just some background information. Not only was Mouth to Mouth named one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2022, which I just found out when I was researching about you, Antoine, which now I have a lot of questions. Um, but he also is the, Me too. Uh, nov- <laughs> you do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But he's also the uh, novelist of the interloper and panorama city. And we'll get into that because I want to know this whole process of his with how he went from theme to theme to theme, but his writing has appeared in the Paris review quarterly West best new American voices. He's a contributing editor to a public space is the, is that a literary magazine? Yeah, yeah, it's a literary quarterly out of New York. It's um, Bridget Hughes is the founder and editor. She was uh, at the Paris Review for many years, which is how I met her. And um, she, in fact, was the editor of Paris Review after George Plimpton died. And then she went on to found a public space. Okay, thank you. And um, he also received the Carol Hawk Smith Fiction Fellowship at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. Um, and the San Fernando Valley Award for Fiction. He's been named a finalist for the National Magazine Award um, and the Forward Magazine Book of the Year Award. So Antoine, I am among a uh, definitely well-known writer, someone who has won multiple awards. I am honored to be interviewing him. And I also found out he's teaching a course at Stanford and he's taught at the University of Iowa, the University of California, San Diego, at UCLA. I don't know what you haven't done, Antoine. He was born in Montreal, um, raised in Cal- California and Saudi Arabia, and now lives with his family in Los Angeles. Okay. So yep. we got all of your background um, wow. out there. And I uh, also love Montreal. I got a chance to be oh, there yeah. for a wedding that my father's um, best friend from college, his wife is from Montreal. So have very fond memories. And I thought That's everyone beautiful. in Canada spoke French. I was like, oh, everyone in Canada is bilingual in French and English. And then I realized, no, it's just that area. Yeah. But yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. The uh, you mentioned the Valley Fiction Award. We like to call that the Northridge Nobel. Oh, OK. <laughs> well, okay. and I kind of was doing some research that you've been around a lot of California. Like now you're in LA, but you know, all of Southern California, Northern California, Central. Yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, when when, uh, when I was seven, we left Montreal. So I was this little, or just about seven, I was this little French Canadian boy. And um, we moved to Madera, California, which is near Fresno in the Central Valley, uh, farm town, essentially. And um, 
it was uh, it was a, quite a shock. Um, if you want to make a, a writer out of somebody, um, that's definitely a good uh, ingredient is to drop them into an entirely foreign environment over and over yeah. again. Um, well, and we were there for you, four yeah, years yeah. and then Santa Monica, then Saudi Arabia, and then we came back to Santa Monica. Oh, wow. So what brought your family over to Saudi Arabia? Um, it was, well, it was always work. My dad was an orthopedic surgeon and initially, um, there was an opportunity to move to the States and that was in Madera because they had no orthopedic surgeon in Madera County. They needed somebody. So he's like a skilled foreign worker or whatever the visa category is. We got our green cards from that. And, um, then uh, he got lured down to LA, to Santa Monica after four years in Madeira and didn't like uh, the situation. He didn't like who he was working with. So, you know, he could have just uh, hung his own shingle or partnered with somebody else. But a friend of his pointed out an ad in one of the medical journals, come work in Saudi Arabia. So off we went on, on it. what would have been a five-year adventure, but um, he caught hepatitis B from a patient and almost died. And so we were back after one year. So I just did seventh grade in Saudi Arabia. And then then it was back to Quebec or um, Los Angeles. And my mother just said, we're going back to Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, what do you find as a writer? I find this very interesting because L.A., I'm on Long Island, but I'm a huge, I'm a New York City person like mm -hmm. that. I just came back from a visit with family in the Philly area. So I'm always really Northeastern based. And when I go to Southern California, we have family friends in Orange County. I've been to Universal, to mm -hmm. Disneyland um, and San Diego a few times. I find that the energy for writing, like I would assume that it's, the community is different because of how Hollywood based LA is with acting. Do yeah. you find differences with the Northeast compared to say, especially Southern California? Yeah. I mean, if you're living in Brooklyn, right. Yeah. And you say to somebody, I'm a writer, they're going to probably assume that you're working on a novel, right. Mm -hmm. Or short stories, maybe, I don't know. And if you say to somebody here, you're a writer, they, may assume that you are working for television or writing screenplays and you know so there is definitely like a slant in that in the hollywood direction um however i there's quite a thriving literary community here it's always been here but for instance i was in the 90s i was at ucla and so i was english and i was pre-med i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do and i really at one point decided, yeah, I want to be a novelist, right? I don't, I, I'm not going to go to medical school. So I had, I didn't know any other writers and I didn't know how to meet them. Um, and I, I, uh, you know, I listened to bookworm on the radio, that kind of thing. And, you know, since then the, the internet has really connected people in, in a way that has made it possible for writers who are sort of outside the literary community to, find opportunities to connect with writers who are sort of inside that literary, literary community to join. Um, and, you know, there's the, the sort of the green room at the festival of books is kind of an annual reunion, right. For like all the LA based um, writers. So I don't, we're, we're pretty spread out. We meet up for lunch sometimes, you know, some of us, um, but it's the, there is freedom 
in not having your next door neighbor also working on a novel. This you get a really good sense of like how indifferent the world is to what you're trying to make, um, in in a positive and negative way. Yeah, and so it's interesting because I think I think of Jimmy Kimmel Live or um, mm -hmm. you know the talk shows, the late night shows that there's always that oh I know James Corden and he does those flash mobs with musicals in right. um, one of the studio lots I. I'm blanking on that area of Los Angeles, but um, I don't know. Studio Yeah, City I don't remember or... which studio. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, there are studios in different areas. The Burbank, you know, there's some in Hollywood, there's Culver City. So I don't know where his show tapes. Yeah. But, but like yeah. every studio lot has a Starbucks or like multiple Starbucks is. Yeah, yeah. I think sure. like the stereotype is when you see all these people working on writing, it's like you said, that Sunset Boulevard, Hitchcock kind of, not yeah. Hitchcock, that's not Hitchcock. But uh, the Sunset Boulevard type noir of, oh, everyone is writing their next breakout screenplay. And right there. Well, there uh, you, yeah. Do you remember Seattle's best coffee shops? I don't know if they still exist. But there was it was a competitor to Coffee Bean and Starbucks. And so there was one in Santa Monica uh, on Montana Avenue. And I remember walking in there and it was the spot there were no sort of co co-working spaces then and stuff but it was a spot where people would go and open their laptops and be working you know and so you'd walk in and it's just like every table is a coffee and a laptop open and you think uh look at all these suckers you know like wannabes like trying to they're all working on their screenplays they're all hoping to make their big break and then you sort of like stop and take a look at who's really sitting there and it's like okay there's like three simpsons writers right and there's wow like uh, a Oscar nominated screenwriter. And like, it was the place where people would just go to write, but you realize, oh no, no, no. Like these are just, these are all, many of them are very highly successful writers who just wanted to get out of the house. Yeah. So, well, and I think- Depends on the, the neighborhood, reason, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think the reason Sunset Boulevard, and I'm, who created Sunset Boulevard? Why am I blanking on that director? I don't Is know. Is it a they, Billy Wilder film? Yes, thank you, Billy yeah. Wilder. Um, and, but that was a very evocative film for me with the noir, but as I was reading mouth to mouth, listening to, uh, your excellent, uh, audiobook performer, we can shout him out. What is his name? Eduardo, Antoine? Eduardo Ballerini. Yeah. He is phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. And, and Antoine told me when I didn't hit record that, uh, Eduardo has been written up by the New York times. So he's a featured, uh, audiobook performer. Yeah. Um, but like also Hitchcock's Psycho and not Psycho, but more um, Rear Window. And um, I was thinking a lot about Vertigo with your novel. Vertigo. Sure. Yes. And yeah. the San Francisco scenes. I mean, that's San Francisco, but there's still like this film noir aspect that is yeah. actually in mouth to mouth. So like, maybe let's start there. How inspired are you by say Hitchcock or these very like 1940s, 50s noir type films. Right, right. Consciously, not at all. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is so happy to welcome Broadview Press as our official sponsor. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. 
They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history. They always publish with an eye towards diversity. So there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview Anthology of American Literature, which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American Literary Survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. Do you have a queer fascination with classic films? Ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves? Hi, my name is Christian Garcia, and I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film and peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera and into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema, and I'll be sure to save you a seat at our next showing. See you there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I mean, is that, <laughs> is that, yeah. I don't know, I hope that's not a dead end answer, but like um, this, uh, something interesting happened with my first novel, uh, The Interloper, which was when it came out, it was described as a sort of neo-noir, which was a genre or a category that I had never heard of. And they referred to the James Kane ending of that uh, novel. And I was like, who's James Kane? Uh, you know, like literally, I'm Googling, you know, trying to figure out where I position myself and part of like, there's a sort of dual reason why that book came out the way it did. Um, in terms of genre, I was really, really, really into uh, Nabokov. And so, you know, I'd read a ton of Nabokov. And so like, I was looking at Lolita a lot and some of his other work, but Lolita is in certain ways, like a, a send up of that kind of novel. Mm -hmm. It has that in it. And some of his other books are as well. So I'm kind of like the guy who uh, wrote a science fiction movie, you know, having only seen Spaceballs, right? And then people say, oh, this is a reference to Star Wars. And I'm like, I've never seen Star Wars. So that's one aspect of it was a sort of inherited forms. And then the other aspect of it is the only reason I wrote The Interloper is because of a tragedy in my family where my older half brother was murdered and um, when I was a kid and he was 19, he was driving across the country. Um, and 
I had this idea later of like, what if the, I knew the guy who had done it was out on parole? And I was like, what if I bumped into that guy, right? How do you extract real justice from somebody? Like, how would I deal with that situation? And that got the ball rolling sort of as in terms of the the cockamamie scheme that this uh, oh uh, that Owen Patterson comes up with in that book. So I wouldn't I never would have written a sort of that that particular neo-noir if I hadn't had um you know that experience in my in my family. It's not really I'm not really interested in crime writing as a yeah. as a genre to 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 read. And do you turn to your family experiences for most of the origin of your novels or was that a rare case well yeah i I don't know that they come from the family but i would say you know imagination is definitely you know obviously we can't create anything out of whole cloth right but we mm -hmm. we we only know what we've absorbed but um memory and, and imagination are very much much sort of tangled up in in my process um yeah. so it's not like i'm writing auto fiction but there are definite, um, you know, I could I could go through mouth to mouth, for instance, which has more pseudo autobiographical material than a lot of uh, my other books. Um, and I can mark here's where this detail, here's where that detail comes from, especially the art world stuff and the UCLA stuff at the beginning. Yeah, well, and um, something that fascinates me, I mean, you've we've both mentioned vertigo right so for everyone out there you need to watch vertigo the hitchcock film um yeah. and maybe you know watch it read a little mouth to mouth watch it uh that could be a really interesting uh comp analysis um yeah when mouth to mouth is taught but um what's interesting though is vertigo has that famous hitchcockian femme fatale that blonde bombshell which he was very there's been a lot of analysis about why was he so drawn to blonde women in his films but yeah. um right she's saved from drowning but here we actually have two men and like that's why yeah. right away without even really knowing you know about you Antoine I'm like oh this is a queer noir novel right um right. just because of that engrossing intoxicating almost strangers on a train Hitchcock type yeah. film of like desire between them that can't be expressed or more like why is there this protagonist who is voyeuristically obsessed like it's right. almost this compulsive obsession that you really draw into the psyche so you know maybe yeah. why not why did you not go for that femme fatale why is it a younger man who is breathing this life is a into a drowning older man yeah, I don't know I, why I'm maybe I should be on a couch right now. Um, oh. <laughs> no, but I now going back to the interloper, the the premise of that is this guy who's uh, in a in a marriage where his um, brother-in-law is murdered, like while he and his wife are on, the, on their honeymoon. And a year later, she's still in mourning and he's trying to figure out how to extract real justice from the killer who's in jail. And after whatever, some uh, false starts, he starts writing to the killer in jail as a woman, um, his idea being that he wants to seduce this killer and break his heart. And that's how he's going to do it. But of course, he gets sort of caught up, you know, in his own trap. It's it's a, it's a cock. It's like a clever scheme, but not a wise one. So um, but my uh, my uh, wife's father's writing partner um, read it 
this is back in you know 2008 or something like that and he said to me at, at like a, a party he goes i figured it out he's a repressed homosexual and i'm like you know this guy writes uh mysteries right so he wants the solution to the whole thing but i mm -hmm. thought okay it's an interesting thing that's a, that's definitely a relationship of attempted seduction between two men and uh and mouth to mouth is a younger man fascinated with an older man in a, in terms of a uh it's more of a role model you know kind of situation i mean would you say like um is all about eve a queer film because it's a woman and another woman I mean, yeah i mean there's yeah. been a lot I, of i know queer. i think it's cool yeah. i think i'd love i'd love to read somebody like you know pulling that apart and seeing you know what they what they bring to it um but in terms of a femme fatale yeah i don't know that's a good that's a good question well, i guess can, it just didn't occur to be... me for this project yeah well <laughs> and can there be a male fatale i don't there's a lot made like something that's fascinating is how much the attractiveness of Jeff, your protagonist, how right. attractive he is. Like yeah, yeah. that even, um, you know, the man, I can give this away to everyone out yeah. there because it happens at the beginning, but he saves this older man who he finds out is an art dealer, very well-known, established. Yeah. Um, uh, he saves his life. And that... The art dealer, though, makes a lot out of his attraction when Jeff starts to work for him. And yeah, the, right? well, another yeah. another employee, Marcus, who yes. who is at least flexible, um, makes a point yeah. of saying, OK, yeah, no, you're going to you're you're pretty. You can sit in the front, you know, like and and we don't want to get accused of only putting pretty girls at the front of the gallery so we can put you there. And yeah, um, I thought that was an interesting line. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah. Subversive so, reading happening. Right, right. Um, yeah, and the narrator, the unnamed narrator, does remark sort of on how Jeff was this thrift store Adonis, you know, this uh this good looking guy. And I think to a large extent, I I just kind of wanted to like stack things in Jeff's favor that he's not aware of. So Jeff kind of goes up the glass escalator of privilege. And in a lot of ways, this story is about him <clears throat> not acknowledging his own ambition and the dark side of that ambition. So he kind of thinks that all these pieces just fell into place because he's Jeff, you know. And um, and so I think being, you know, a good-looking guy really helps him on his on his journey to the top. Yeah. Well, and I'm I've interviewed. You know, I'm a gay man and I've interviewed so many LGBTQ writers and especially like seeing what's in um, queer noirs right now. Um, there's been some really intriguing, um, almost like bringing Patricia Highsmith back, but at full throttle. Right. With, like, the Price of Saw. And yes. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley is a great example. Um, what I even think Strangers on a Train actually was a novel first. Um, yes. All right. Okay. So what I love is though, that you really bring these elements, but to set it in an art dealer, um, in a gallery, I thought was really interesting because like you even just mentioned the word flexible with that one employee that he might be yeah. sexually flexible. Um, right. 
because yeah, the art dealer world is a completely, it's almost like going into Condé Nast Vogue with Anna Wintour. It has that right. same, the ins and outs of the business. Like the stakes are really high for the people in that profession, but outside yeah. of it, everyone's thinking, wait, um, you know, what's so stressful about this situation? Right. Um, right. Like, yes. way, right. Yeah. Like when you're watching the devil wears Prada and you're sort of like, you know, sh just go, just quit. Yes. <laughs> right. Just go exit the, this, this crazy microcosm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's cool about the art world and interesting about it to me is just the, the question of value. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I and this comes from personal experience. Like after college, I worked for a fine art appraiser, uh, fine art and rare book appraiser in Beverly Hills. So uh, we were in and out of all the galleries there and dealing with international galleries and then the auction houses and all that kind of stuff. So um, I came in as a transcriptionist, essentially transcribing my boss's descriptions of the artworks that she saw when she's like doing an inspection for you know mm -hmm. somebody's collection and. So, and I didn't know anything about art other than, you know, what anybody picks up along the way. Uh, but contemporary fine art, nothing. And so I learned about uh, contemporary modern fine art from, um, you know, the research that I had to do as we were writing up these reports for artworks that we were looking at and appraising and from auction catalogs. So I came to appreciate contemporary art in, in, in a deeper way than I had before. And I'm a fan of a lot of this art, but it also came with the price tag attached, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to like an art history class in college. Like every, I went to the Pompidou and walked around the galleries and I'm like, oh, Agnes Martin and Franz Klein and Clifford Still. And like, you know, like I know all the, these people, I know where these works are in their history and like, but I also know how much each one should be insured for, right? And so there's this mm -hmm. weird, and I always felt kind of icky about it. This is I had a real ambivalence about this, you know, loving the art, but also trying to assess the value of it. And I don't know, it's a, it, as you said, it's a fascinating world that looks strange from the outside, in part because those dollar figures just don't compute compared to other real world things, you know, like the most expensive house in my neighborhood, you know, you know doesn't add up to the price of some some painting this new Mondrian that's going on the market, you know, or something like that. Um, yeah. But that's what they're worth because that's what people agree that they're worth. So I find it fascinating that you said it in Beverly Hills because, you know, like full disclosure, I, we work um, the ivory tower boiler room with a art gallery in Chelsea that is a nonprofit empowers female artists and queer artists. But again, like we've had conversations about all those dynamics in Chelsea with the mm -hmm. different art galleries and, you know, who's there, um, who are the buyers and who's kind of uh, not accepted into those spaces. And right. there's like, you worked in appraisal. So you understand those ins and outs um, of who is sometimes you just don't have the money to, um be part of these circles right so well even you know yeah. even if you do have the money yeah sometimes well, you know these people get sold uh they won't get sold the prime paintings unless they have the relationships in addition to the money that's true well and yeah. so when i think in beverly hills again i love that you 
use this as a location because I'm so um, keyed in on Rodeo Drive and more of the fashion elements of Beverly Hills. So, but again, I like that you're showing this art world that I know exists in Beverly Hills. It's just not necessarily in the public um, zeitgeist. So, right, right. you know, why Beverly Hills? Like what's so important for you about that setting in your novel? Um, the uh, unvarnished honest truth is because that's where uh, I worked as a, as a, you know, my, my job was there. Pace Wildenstein was there. Kagosian was there at the time. Um, and the, and Sotheby's and Christie's were there. So it's, it was ground zero for a lot of, um, you know, high-end contemporary fine art. And uh, it's also just a very strange place. Like when I first started working there, I had grown up in Santa Monica for the most part. And I, and but the culture in Beverly Hills is so different. And just walking around there, my first thought was, this is freakier than, you know, the Venice boardwalk, but these people don't know they're freaks. Like they think they're at the center of the universe. Um, and so it's just, I don't know, it, just a lot of wealth on display and um, people unleashed in some ways because of that wealth. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is that we're not given anything about California because all of this narrative is being told at JFK in New right. York City. So it's yeah. like New York City is actually where the narrator is getting all this information from Jeff as Jeff is yes. just throwing everything onto him. Right. Um, so, yeah, I like, though, that you really play around with New York City, Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, the airport setting is intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Um like, you know, again, why is it as a process? How did you know, OK, I need a narrator like I need someone who is receiving the information, but yeah. it's not coming from Jeff himself. Right. Well, so my first two novels are first person, you know, uh, directed at at the reader. The, the first one is a document written by the narrator. The second one are cassette tapes recorded by the, the narrator um, ostensibly. And then this one I had uh, my you know, sort of my longest early draft of this was about, you know, another, it was about one and a half times as long as this book. It was, and it never got anywhere good, never got anywhere near an ending. And that Jeff narrated from the start. And um, one of the reasons it never got anywhere near an ending was I was not, I never quite settled into, I, I was never comfortable with having Jeff's voice up front and center. And so it was while I, and I kept abandoning this book uh, and, and I would switch to another one and then abandon that one and go back and forth. Um, the other one remains abandoned, sadly. But it, I was reading Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald uh, while working on the other one. And I thought, oh, maybe this is what I need to try. This unnamed, almost authorial stand-in narrator who is part of conveying the story to the to the reader. Um, and what it ended up doing was sort of put Jeff's storytelling, you know, onto the stage. So you're witnessing the act of the telling of the story. Um, and then, and that really became more of sort of the core of what the book is about uh, in terms of like, what are the stories we tell ourselves uh, for how we got to where we are? Uh, these characters are in middle age. You know, it's one of those um, periods in life where you might stop and take a look around, especially if you're successful and go, huh, how did I get here? Um, uh, like the Talking Heads song, right? 
And um, uh, so that's what Jeff is doing. And it's a, having that telling on this, on, you know, sort of as part of the action of the book um, made it all click for me. And that's, that's when I was able to actually start the first draft of what it became. If you know what I mean? The final yeah. first draft. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's such a history of, especially in these obsessive uh, tutelage type narratives of mm -hmm. one and usually they are men in this genealogy, I guess, of the noir, but who they're trying to model themselves off of this successful man um, mm -hmm. that in this whole voyeuristic encounter, the narrator, though, kind of serves like a um, great Gatsby, All Nick right. Haraway type narrator, yeah. where, yeah. again, you wonder how much is the narrator infatuated? Like, how much is he voyeuristically enjoying what Jeff is telling him? Like it's yeah. this passing down where Jeff is invested in Francis Arsenault, the art dealer, and obsessed with who he is. Uh, right. The narrator is obsessed with Jeff. So, yeah, I, well, I don't yeah. know if the narrator is obsessed with Jeff. He's he's been buttonholed by Jeff, kind of, and well, sort of for true. the you know for most of the book, I would say the narrator is being subjected to Jeff, um, <laughs> but and the narrator even declares that he's not going to write the book. You know, he gets a yeah. sense, maybe Jeff wants me to write this as a book, but I'm not going to write this book. Um, however, he does, right, in the end. Um, so, yes, by the end, he may be a little bit obsessed with Jeff because of because of what uh, what comes to light by the end of the book. Yeah, well, and is it really helpful? I'm assuming it's so helpful for you as the writer to just have so many layers, like of yeah. how this narrative is transmitted of even just causing unreliability with this oral storytelling from Jeff yeah. like questioning. Okay. Is that exactly what was happening in how everything is going on with his rise to fame in the art dealer world? Right. Well, and I, I all first person narrators are unreliable, right? Yeah. Um, even the ones that are supposed to be not unreliable and it's true in life. We, we even if no matter how sincere we are, we're unreliable because there's uh, the part of our brain that generates this language when we talk about ourselves is interested only in plausibility, not in truth. So, you know, it's what, sort of whatever, whatever works. Um, there are these famous where the corpus callosum is severed, right, um, to prevent uh, surgically to prevent uh, epileptic seizures because it'll keep the seizure from moving to the other half of the brain kind of thing. And they these patients who had this surgery seemed perfectly normal until they started trying these different experiments on them um, by oh, wow. giving stimuli to just one half of the brain. So the classic example is they showed um, the right side of the brain, essentially, using the visual field, the word walk. And so the patient would stand up and go to walk, and they'd say, hey, where are you going? And then the left side of the brain, where that sort of language is generated to answer for things or justify it, um, would kick in. And then they'd say, oh, I just wanted to get a Coke. Right? And so they come up with the justification for doing the action that, they, they, that they're not even aware of why they did it. Right? Um, so that happens all the time. You see it with kids a lot. It's really fun to watch kids try to justify their actions. And, and they... They suspect that they're making it up, but they're kind of going to try to um, 
make it, you know, get it past you. Um, so any, in any case, that's where the first person unreliability comes from for me. And um, definitely interested in um, storytelling and received stories. And I love having present action that's fairly static uh, because they're in this transitional place, the airport lounge, where mm -hmm. you might be apt to open up and tell this kind of story. And it's somebody he knew back in the day, but is probably never going to see again. So there's a kind of confessional aspect to it. Um, so yeah, yeah. that's, that's almost, those are some of the things I liked about doing that. Yeah, almost like why on vacation strangers will tell you everything that's ever happened in their life, but then yep. would never disclose some of those moments to their family members. Right, um, right. And yeah, so no, thank you for explaining that, Antoine. And, you know, I also love that uh, you dwell a lot on this theme, philosophical belief, but like, why did Jeff meet Francis and know that he had to save him from drowning? Like, why was that his, uh, almost seeing it as his destiny, but right. right. Are we actually in control of our, um, path in life? Like, are we able to actually, are we cognizant of, okay, we're going to go from a B to C Right. And how much of that is actually put upon us from an outside universal uh, force. Right? right. So it seems like that's something in mouth to mouth you're really grappling with is our fate. Yeah. Well, our sense of agency. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And for Jeff, he's, you know, if he hadn't been on the beach at that moment when he sees Francis bobbing in the water and, 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 you know, for Jeff, Jeff almost feels like it, he had no choice, right? He said, like, it's like he had a gun to his head. Like, you have to try to save somebody. You're not just going to turn around and walk away unless, if you consider yourself a good person or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but that's an event that completely changes the course of Jeff's life or determines the course of Jeff's life to some degree that he ends up rescuing Francis. And it's just like one of fate's forks, right? That goes, <clears throat> and if he had never rescued Francis, who knows, you know, he was still, he was kind of in a pause mode. Um, open to that kind of thing. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, to me, the the idea of fate is fascinating when you look at it in in retrospect. It's one of those tools we use to make sense of our lives. Um, repackage serendipity is what I like to call it, because a lot of the time, the things that end up determining uh, where we end up uh, are not necessarily those things that we planned ahead, but something, sometimes it's the things we've stumbled upon, you know? Um, often, you know, life partners, right? That person, your husband or wife, you you may have crossed paths with them when you were young and then recross paths or, you know, people love those kinds of stories where it's like just a coincidence that we bumped into each other. And, mm -hmm. and then, but look, it was my soulmate. And, you know, maybe there could have been a lot of other soulmates, but this is the one, you know? So you look back and it feels like fate, but um, I think fate only really works in retrospect. Yeah. So you mean I'm not going to find my soulmate on Grinder? And now a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemrick, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a 
bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit GeoReview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. Hey, True Crime and Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. Listen, the holidays are literally right around the corner. And I know that some of you are scrambling to find that gift for that person on your list who is just so difficult to buy for because they have everything. Or you're sitting there in your home and you're realizing that there is this space in your house that just is begging to be decorated, but you don't know what to put there. Well, I'm here to tell you that Mandy Made It has the answers to all of your holiday needs. Mandy Made It makes the best handmade crochet and cricut items I have ever seen. And I mean, literally, she can make anything. The customization options are literally endless. So, Go to at Mandy Made It on Instagram and search Mandy Made It on Facebook. Slide into her DMs and order your customized holiday gifts and decorations today. That's at Mandy Made It on Instagram. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Once again, search Mandy Made It on Instagram and Facebook slide in her DMs and order your gifts or holiday decorations today. You could. I mean, why not? <laughs> I don't know how serendipitous that is, though. But um, well, yeah, I think you'd have to have somebody who's like in the right state of mind, right? Like, especially a grinder, right? It's like kind of it's just like here for the hookup. But maybe you get yeah. somebody in like a, a you know different state of mind. It's like yeah, I don't, you never know. Yeah, never yeah, know. But you're right. There somebody. is, and there is such an energy of those in-person encounters. I still think that that's for flirting or just how intimacy and desire works is when you see someone in person and you catch their eyes. That is much yeah. more powerful than on your screen a message popping up. Yeah, it's but you not, guys. Yeah, I feel like you guys are lucky. I mean, I like I'm I'm. <laughs> I'm just super happily married and very happy with where I am, right, in life. So I feel, but I feel like I got lucky because there was a whole stage there in my, you know, in my 20s or whatever, where it's like, how do you meet people? You know, you can meet people like in school, um, but I'm not, I don't think I ever met anybody in a bar that I went out with properly. Maybe other people are better at that game. 
And I feel like the younger generation, you have all these apps and some are more hookup of some friends who are divorced um, and are like, you know what? Right now, I don't need another partner. I'm just going to hook up with uh, young people for a while, you know, and it's just like, OK, that we all know what this is. Right. Um, but then on the other hand, I feel like that there's a romanticizing that sort of eyes across the room, but you can have eyes across somebody who is really not good for you, right? Like somebody who who's like, you guys feel that love connection, but then, you know, a month into being together, you're like, oh, wow, this person's abusive or this person's not, you know, a fit for me. Whereas I feel like you guys get to look at so many qualities in who somebody might be, how they present themselves, et cetera, before you even, you know, lay eyes on them. And, and then, yeah, then maybe you make that love connection. But, you know, there was kind of a stigma against the apps back in the day, unless you were looking for a very particular thing, like J-Date was okay. If you're Jewish and you're looking to get married, you don't want to meet another Jewish person in, you know, in LA, J-Date's cool. But all the other apps was kind of like, you know, it was like hiring a matchmaker or something. Um, yeah. But I feel like there's no stigma now and it's, it's kind of wonderful. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I just, as we're wrapping up, I love all of the praise that is on the back for mouth to mouth, because these are some of the, well, those who are in your company, I'm not sure, mm. you know, you're all writer friends, I'm, but Lauren Groff yeah. um, and Andrew Sean Greer, which talk about a queer, like a gay novelist who yeah. um, has really been inventive with his narratives um, I love his novel less. Um, yeah. you know, how does it feel to be among this community and to be on Barack Obama's best books of 2022? <laughs> well, I mean, the Obama thing was, is a, is very strange. Um, it's great. Uh, it came out of nowhere, right? It's sometimes you have a heads up, like you've been nominated for something or, you know, your publishers trying to send you for these awards or things. And, there's no process for the Obama thing. It's just some, somebody told me probably just some bookseller put it in his hand or, you know, he stumbled across oh, wow. it. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay. I got a text from my publicist, like ca all caps, you know, wake up, wake up. <laughs> you need to, you need to check out, get on the internet. And um, so, yeah, everybody found out from just, I guess his Instagram or something like that. Uh, wow. And yeah, I'm still trying to, I got to get a signed copy uh, to him through friends of friends. Not, I don't know if he would care to have a signed copy, oh. but I'm still trying to figure out what to write. Like I keep getting stuck on like, do I, dear Barack, oh, that's too familiar. I don't know him, you know, dear president Obama. Oh, <laughs> you know, Barack and Michelle, what do I write? I'm not going to write. Thanks Obama. That, that I already ruled that out. But um, <laughs> in terms of the blurbs. Yeah. I don't, I uh, it's uh it's gratifying to be, to be in a community of writers. And as I said, when I was in um, undergrad, I didn't know any other writers. And when I first I took some extension courses at UCLA, and then I, I uh, wrote a fan letter to TC Boyle and took one of his undergrad classes at USC, which cost the same as a year at UCLA. Um, then I went to grad school and suddenly I was among other writers who, and, and, I, I called my mom before classes even started. Like I was had been there for two weeks in Iowa City and I was like almost in tears because I was just like, I found my people. Like I had never felt that to that degree before. So um, that's, I think, where 
that hit me the most and the strongest. And um, and, and everything like those blurbs and those other writers, that is, it feels like a continuation of that. But it feels like, yeah, I'm among among my people. Like we're trying to do cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you can't be having the New York Times review on your front cover saying that it's an enthralling literary puzzle. And I mean, we've talked about how intoxicating mouth to mouth is, um, how tense it is. It's, you know, and I don't want to give away everything, how all the dominoes start to fall. But, um, you know, are you working on anything right now, Antoine, that you can tease us with? Yeah, it's called disappointing follow up dot doc X. (laughs) <laughs> i'm sure yeah. it's not going to be disappointing you no know, my 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 um well if you look at the previous two books all three books are very different from each other and um so i'm i'm following uh you know like a bloodhound on a trail right now which is good um however um the form of it that i'm working on that's allowing me to continue to generate it is i think probably unreadable uh in the sense that i'm just I just keep adding to this one long sentence. Um, and I, you know, I think there are probably people who are going to talk me off that ledge. Uh, so it's a, it's a rough, a rough draft. I'll only say that, um, what can I tease you with? Uh, I'll tease you with that. I always wonder what happens after, uh, the tempest is over the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens, you know, um, Prospero, goes back to Milan, he gives up his magic, he becomes an administrator, and Miranda's married to the first man she met. How's that going? Um, So uh, maybe that's a launching point for something. So we have some Shakespearean influence. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will be excited for you to come back on and divulge it here. Um, Yeah. Happy but to. I can't, yeah, and I can't wait for everyone. Please get your hands or get your mouth on. <laughs> well, <laughs> depends how much you want to be intimate with this novel. Um, but Antoine Wilson's Mouth to Mouth, um, it is available on well, hardcover, of course. But I also think, is there a paperback coming out, Antoine? Yeah, it's coming out in January. Oh, good. So that's okay. too long. It's too long to wait. You definitely want it to get the hardcover. No, get the hardcover. Um, or also you can listen to on Audible, um, Eduardo. I was yes, Eduardo's performance is just so well done and it's yeah. very riveting. It's very fast paced as a novel. So the performance is also really um just I think it's an excellent almost radio play by itself. So yeah, he he's we'll great see. at doing yeah. the different characterizing the different voices without making it feel like he's doing voices. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're really getting the essence of the personalities. So I hope mouth to mouth appears in another form somewhere, you know, on the stage, I think would be interesting. Um, So I'm sure Antoine, you're shot. One of your team is shopping around for you. Oh yeah. No, it's just, actually, it's just been optioned. So I've been talking to people for a while. Thank you. Yeah. So that could be really fun. I'd like to see, uh, yeah, I like to see things transformed. You know, I always like, I I love to leave room for a reader so that people come back to me with their experiences of what they've read 
you know, uh, with room for them to co-create. So, um, yeah, I'd like to see this on screen in some transformed form. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A metamorphosis. We will. Right. Right. In a different iteration, just like maybe what you're doing with the Tempest, but you don't want to disclose to us in full. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. But yeah. A, a retelling, maybe. Um, oh, maybe it's, it's going to be. I think like the Tempest. More, is, no? Yeah, no, 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 the Tempest is. It would not make a good novel. It's a weirdly off balance kind of play. I love it, but it's. Uh, yeah. I think it is a terrible model for a novel. Trust me, I've tried. But um, <laughs> but no, it's just more sort of the these characters get got me thinking about um. Yeah, way more family material going on right now. So we'll oh. see because they these books transform themselves before they um, before I get to that first that final first draft, as I call it, which is oh, the one that draft. lets me get to the end. Yeah. Okay, so we might be seeing something from you within a year to two years. Uh, oh, oh, maybe not. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to pressure you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't I well, make thanks. no wine. Yes. I make no wine before it's time. <laughs> I like that. That's a good yeah. analogy. Okay. Yeah. Um, but thank you, Antoine. Thank you to all of you, you listening. Andrew. Um, please, please tell us all what you think of mouth to mouth. Antoine is a has a wonderful Instagram. Um, so you can find that in the show notes along with how to buy the book and how to listen to it. And yeah, this was wonderful. I can't wait to have you back, Antoine. Fabulous. Thanks for having me, Andrew. This has been great. Of course. Thank you. Okay. And bye to the listeners out there. <laughs>Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But first, it's only $5, which is less than a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical. If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should, because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer. So much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But if you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room? And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, true crime friends and ivory tower boiler room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content that includes true crime and academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it, literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but we could use a little bit more. 
if you don't. Oh, mind. yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com to actually order our merchandise. So mm-hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room logo, we're going to make it happen for you. Okay. On that note, happy winter season, everyone. Happy winter. <laughs>